Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On August 22, 1996, 22-year-old Debbie Dorian was discovered bound, gagged, raped, and murdered in her apartment. Her father was the one to have made the horrific discovery, and to this day, her killer has never been apprehended and her case has gone cold. However, he did leave behind his genetic marker, his DNA. Though he would lay dormant for nearly three years, he did strike again, raping at least seven more women in the Visalia, California area, linked to all of those crimes through his DNA. But Debbie would be the only known victim to have died at his hands. With DNA technology having advanced by leaps and bounds over the last 22 years, as well as some recent, very high-profile cases in California that had long been cold being solved, it is our hope to shine a light on Debbie's case, to bring this killer and rapist to justice, and a measure of closure for Debbie's family and friends who have waited much too long for answers. With the blessings of Debbie's mother, Sarah, and the help and guidance of her best friend, Katina, California Dreaming and Orbital Jigsaw are bringing you their story in episode 64, The Unsolved Murder of Debbie Dorian. You're listening to Mugshot. I'm your host, Lindsay. I'd like to dedicate today's episode to my father, an avid and enthusiastic baseball fan who eagerly ensured I had everything I needed for today's story. Today's Mugshot. Name. Eight players from the Chicago White Sox, better known as the Black Sox. Charged with conspiracy to defraud. Baseball, America's favorite pastime. There's nothing like the sound of a bat cracking against a ball, the organ playing, cheers of the crowd, and the crunch of peanut shells beneath your feet. Over the years, the beloved game has instilled a sense of pride in the cities that the teams call home. Players have been heralded as heroes, icons, and role models. Author Tom Tatum says the following, Baseball isn't just a game. It's life being played out on a field, a field of dreams, on diamonds of green, where players pursuing their dreams try to be the best they can be on the grandest stage of all, where men become boys and boys become men, all speaking one universal language without uttering a single word. The sport has stood the test of time, but like the rest of history, it's experienced its share of shame. In the fall of 1919, the country was raw with emotion. The First World War had ended the fall before, 
and the economy was still reeling. Families were rebuilding. Life was resuming. What better way to return to a sense of normalcy than the patriotic feelings baseball provided? The World Series was just around the corner, and this would be a special one. Aside from being the first major sporting event since the end of the war, it would be the first time Cincinnati played host to the World Series. In an effort to bring in more money and help stimulate the economy, this would be a best five out of nine series. Typically, the series was a best four out of seven. The Chicago White Sox would be facing the Cincinnati Reds. Almost immediately, tickets were sold out. People flocked to the games, overbooking hotels to the point where people were renting out their homes for additional lodging options. Businesses such as shops and restaurants inflated their prices by as much as four times the normal rate. This would be a memorable series for sure. The White Sox team in 1919 was considered to possibly be one of the greatest teams of all time. They were thought to be unstoppable and were a virtual shoe-in for winning the series. While the team seemed strong on the outside, things were a bit more complicated internally. White Sox owner Charles Comiskey was loved by the town of Chicago. Many even wanted him to run for mayor, but as much as the town loved him, he was disliked by his players. He was cheap to a fault and didn't pay well. The best team in the league was making what some minor league players were making. For example, first baseman Chick Gandel was making a mere $4,000 a year, which is equivalent to just under $60,000 today. Not only that, the team was given the smallest food allowance in the league. When traveling for games, it was industry standard that players would receive $4 a day for meals. Comiskey paid three. He was too cheap to even pay to have the uniforms dry cleaned. The players were sick of having to float their own cleaning costs, so they retaliated by wearing filthy, dirty uniforms onto the field, earning them the nickname of the Black Sox. Although, this nickname later took on a new meaning. In 1917, when the Sox won the pennant, they were promised a bonus. Expecting a nice fat paycheck, the players were disappointed when the bonus turned out to be a bottle of cheap champagne. Perhaps the worst offense Miserly Comiskey committed was against his star pitcher, Eddie Sycott. The owner previously promised Sycott a monetary bonus of $10,000 when he pitched his 30th game in the season. Slyly, he pulled Sycott from the lineup so he couldn't pitch that game. The dream team was undervalued and underpaid. Unfortunately for the players, this was during the time of the dreaded reserve clause in baseball. If you didn't accept a contract, you couldn't play on any team in the league. You either took it or you didn't. There was no bargaining power. The Boston Red Sox had gone on strike because of this just the year before. Their hands were tied. Comiskey had sought out the best of the best, but they were all left with no other option than to take what they could get. That is, until first baseman Chick Gandel hatched a plan. A plan that, although an unexpected result, ensured this series would certainly be memorable for years to come. Chick Gandel was no stranger to what went on with gamblers during baseball games. It wasn't much of a secret that bookies would scour the stands taking bets on who would win. 
it also wasn't uncommon for people to try and fix the games. Once, a gambler even went so far as to shoot at the feet of a player so he would miss a catch. Many of these more extreme bookies came over from horse racing when it was shut down due to the war. What was less commonly known, though, was that players were paid off and bribed to throw games a certain way. There were rumors, of course, but it was hard to prove. Joseph Sport Sullivan was one of these gamblers and bookies. Sullivan was relatively well-known as he made a habit of schmoozing the players. He would buy them drinks and bring them expensive cigars for tips on what to expect during the game. Who would be pitching? What was the strategy? The tips would then be used to strategically place his bets and reap the rewards. Because of this, he was considered an expert to outsiders, and people would hire him and pay a commission if he would place their bets for them. When Sports Sullivan received word that Sox player Chick Gandel wanted to meet with him, his curiosity was piqued. He was shocked and intrigued when Gandel himself suggested that he could gather up a group of players to throw the series. They would ensure that his own team, the White Sox, lost for a price. Once Sullivan agreed to participate and offered a total of $80,000 for the contributing players, Gandel got to work. He knew that a fix couldn't work without the help of one key position, a pitcher. With so much responsibility on the pitcher to throw what couldn't be hit, he had to get at least one or two of them on board. Luckily, Chick knew just the man. Eddie Sycott was still bitter about being pulled from pitching his 30th game and losing out on his bonus. Surely he would want in. Originally, Sycott wanted no part in the scheme, but the more he thought about it, the more the money called to him. He was in. After recruiting shortstop Swede Risberg to take part in the fix, utility infielder Fred McMullen overheard Risberg talking quietly to Sycott in the locker room. McMullen invited himself into the plan, stating he wouldn't be left out. Now they had four. The four players decided that they needed at least one more pitcher to make this work easily. Pitchers rotated every game so they didn't injure their arms. They approached Claude Lefty Williams. Williams was hesitant, but his teammates were persuasive. They could probably make this happen anyway, regardless of whether or not he participated. If they were going to lose the series regardless, wouldn't he rather at least earn some money from it? The last step was to recruit hitters. The pitchers and fielders would ensure they let the Reds score more runs, but batters were needed to keep the White Sox runs in check. George Buck Weaver, Shoeless Joe Jackson, and Oscar Happy Felsch were the third, fourth, and fifth batters in the lineup, and they were in on the plan now as well. Jackson was thought to be the greatest natural hitter of all time, and they couldn't have him hitting well and scoring runs excessively. Finally, they were ready. These men, many still in their early 20s, were going to throw the World Series. Everything was on the line, but they weren't worried. No one would ever know. The amount of money bet on one team over another is an indicator of the odds of winning. Before the start of the series, the odds were strongly in favor of the White Sox. Gamblers were starting to put down money, and they were sure they couldn't lose. 
Their hopes were high that whoever bet on the Cincinnati Reds would lose their money and it would be split amongst themselves. However, rumors were starting to fly. At this point, there are at least nine people involved, and you can't be certain who talks to who around town. The public was surprised when the odds became closer and closer. People who had caught wind of the alleged fix were starting to put money down on the Reds, including Sports Sullivan. There was no logical reason for it, since Chicago had outshone Cincinnati all year. This furthered the suspicions of the game being rigged. William Thomas Burns and Billy Maharg were experienced gamblers and were keen to pick up on this shift. The duo realized that something was up, whether it was rumors of an injured player or something else. Perhaps they could swoop in and use whatever the weakness was to convince the team they were already at risk and should work with them to throw the games. Burns and Maharg approached Sycott, who was indeed rumored to have a sore arm, figuring he would be their best bet. Luckily for them, the pitcher was already on the same wavelength. Sycott agreed to their plan, mentioning nothing of the existing plan with Sullivan, but demanded $100,000 for the team. The eight players were now looking at $180,000 in exchange for their loss. Split evenly eight ways, this would be $22,500 each, way more than their annual salaries. Burns and Maharg had one small problem. The players wanted to be paid up front, or at least a portion. They wouldn't have that much money until the individual games started, but they knew where to go. A man named Arnold Rothstein... Rothstein was the gambling king. By age 30, he was a multimillionaire, every penny having been earned on strategically placed bets. The men approached the millionaire, but to their surprise, Rothstein turned down the offer. He didn't want to tarnish the beloved game. The two would have to do it the old-fashioned way. The players may just have to wait a few days. Arnold Rothstein's business partner couldn't believe his stupidity. How could he pass up on a chance like this? It was guaranteed to be a success. Eight men were putting their careers on the line, something they wouldn't offer if they weren't serious. If he won't do it, I will, Abatel told himself. Of course, Attel didn't have the money to front to the players himself, but they didn't have to know that. He would tell them Rothstein had changed his mind, but wanted to leave his name out of it. Abatel left their headquarters in New York for the first game in Cincinnati and recruited Burns and Maharg to work with him. Coincidentally, Sport Sullivan had the same thought as Burns and Maharg. He needed to finance his upfront costs and also approached Arnold Rothstein. Sullivan and Rothstein had a bit more history together, and Sullivan proved to be more persuasive. Rothstein was on board. The plan was now officially in place. The 1919 World Series would start the next day, October 1st. In a hotel room, the eight participants met with Sullivan to go over everything. It was decided that games one and two would definitely be lost on purpose. Eddie Sycott and Lefty Williams were due to pitch those games, so they had to take advantage of it before the other pitchers took over. When the players asked for their money, the bookie responded that he didn't have it yet. Uncertainty swarmed the room as the players eyed one another cautiously. Where was the money? Don't worry, Sport assured them. Rothstein doesn't play dirty. He has money on the line, too. You'll get your share. Several players weren't buying it, 
they needed concrete proof. After making a call to the kingpin in New York, Rothstein agreed to send a wire of $20,000 up front. The rest would come after he saw that the plan was actually in motion and the games were being lost. It was clear to everyone at this point that skepticism was rampant. The players didn't trust the bookies, and the bookies didn't trust the players. Maybe this whole thing couldn't work after all. A handful of players tried to back out, and arguments ensued. This wasn't what they signed up for, but it was too late to back out now. The gamblers already had enough information to destroy them all. Sleep didn't come easily that evening, for the big game was just mere hours away. Let's take a quick break before game one starts. Hey y'all, this is Jessica. And this is Amy. And we are 1096 Crime Chicks. For those of you that don't know, 1096 is a 10 code for crazy or mental person. And together, we're a little mental and crazy because we love true crime. If you enjoy true crime podcasts, be sure to subscribe to ours. We will be covering stories new and old. And maybe a few stories you haven't heard. So find us on Podbean at 1096 Crime Chicks. Welcome back from the break. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's see what happened next. October 1st, 1919 was as perfect a day as any. The sun was shining and the temperature was perfect. It was a great day for baseball. Overnight, the odds on the game had continued to close in. Rumors continued to spread, but this was a big event. Of course there would be skeptics. Hugh Fullerton, renowned sports writer, put people's minds at ease when he reported that these type of lies always spread before a big event. The World Series in 1912 was rumored to have been fixed for the New York Giants to win, but the rumors were laid to rest when the Boston Red Sox were victorious. The likely cause for the shift in bets was Sycott's sore arm, according to White Sox manager Kid Gleason. Meanwhile, throughout the stadium and in towns all over the country, people were pawning suits, watches, and jewelry to place their bets on the big game. The star-spangled banner was sung. The Sox were up to bat first as the visiting team. Three outs and no runs later, the Sox took their respective positions in the field. Eddie Sycott stood on the dirt mound and prepared to throw his first pitch to the Reds' batter. Strike one. Chicago fans cheered as their main man was off to a good start. Sycott readied for the second pitch. 
The crowd gasped as the ball flew right into the batter's back, hitting him right between the shoulder blades. While fans wondered what went wrong, the seven other players, plus Arnold Rothstein, had received their sign that the fix was on. Using a carefully orchestrated series of slow throws allowing runners more time to make it safely to the base, the Chicago White Sox lost game one with a score of one to nine. Abe Attell, who had gone behind Rothstein's back to help orchestrate the plan, had bet on this individual game. This was typically a riskier strategy, as it was harder to predict each individual game than it was the overall series. Abe wasn't worried since he had insider information, and he earned a killing on the first game. Rather than paying the eight players the money he had told them they would have up front, the gambler used it to place more bets on the next game. It was a bit of an awkward situation that evening in the hotel room when the players asked for their money. Attell was smart and managed to charm the players into being patient. The series had just started. It took a while to collect enough funds from people. They'll get their dough. Meanwhile, there was no sign of Sport Sullivan anywhere. Despite their increased anxiety, the eight decided to give it one more go and see how things played out. Lefty Williams was due to pitch in Game 2. The rumors of a fix had only increased after the first game, and Williams felt Sycott may have been too obvious. His doubts took over, and he wondered if this would ever work. But $10,000 was exponentially more than his $2,600 salary. He could still do this. He just needed to be more careful than Sycott. Plus, he didn't want to make himself look bad in the process. He still had a career ahead of him. Lefty went on to play a safer game than the game the day before, but still shaky enough to lose. After walking three batters in one inning, the Sox lost game two with a score of two to four. Catcher Ray Schalk wasn't in on the plan. Schalk was behind the plate, playing his best during the game. He was unable to understand what happened. The catcher had signaled for Williams to pitch curveballs on numerous occasions, and every time they went ignored. Lefty had never ignored his signals before. They typically worked quite well together. Schalk was livid and approached Williams with a swift punch after the game. The two grappled with one another, the catcher's anger getting the best of him. The teammates were pulled apart, but the tension on the team could be felt from miles away. Two games had now been lost, and the players were anxious for their compensation. When they approached Abatel's hotel room, the amount of cash laying out in the open was taunting. Finally, this would be worth their while. $40,000 was owed at this point, but Attell ignored the request, despite standing right in front of them. They knew he had the money, they could see it, but he would only give them $10,000 right now, which he sent by way of Bill Burns. The excuse given was that he could use the rest to reinvest back into the plan and earn more for them if they'd just be patient, take it or leave it. Chick Gandal was furious. They had been double-crossed and two, or rather eight, could play at that game. Not only was Abe not paying up, Sport Sullivan was still missing in action. Little did they know, Sullivan had found out about the team working with more than one bookie. He didn't have to pay them the other side would. 
Chances of the players backing out when someone else was still offering them money were slim, so all he had to do was use his information to collect bets and watch the money roll in. Frustrated with how things had played out, the Sox decided they had to win the next game. Attell was counting on them to lose. Sullivan was, too. They probably had money at stake on the individual games, not just the series. They'd teach them a lesson. During their daily check-in with the bookies to go over the plan, Gandal explained to Burns and Maharg that Game 3 would proceed like all the rest of them. They were going to see the plan through. Game 3 would be lost. Chick Gandal had lied. The Chicago White Sox won Game 3, 3-0. Bill Burns lost a large sum of money on Game 3. In fact, he had lost it all. He demanded that Abe Attell fix this, and Attell agreed to pay the players $20,000 after they lost the next game. As much as Bill tried to convince him to give it to the players up front, his boss didn't trust the players after this loss. Ironic, seeing as they didn't go through with the plan because he didn't pay them in the first place, Maharg thought. When the duo approached the players with the new terms, the Sox laughed in their faces. They weren't falling for it. Burns and Maharg were through. Feeling double-crossed himself, Sport Sullivan appeared back out of the woodworks. Gandal noted the fact that he only showed up after the loss and assumed he had lost money too. The first baseman was crystal clear when he told Sullivan that the plan was off. They had been burned and didn't think it was worth it anymore. The bookie panicked knowing that if Chicago won, he would lose everything and then some. I'll tell you what, he said. I'll wire you $20,000 today, before tomorrow's game. Then you'll receive $20,000 more after each loss. A hesitant Gandal agreed to continue as planned, given that the money was in his hands before tomorrow's game. Great, Sullivan thought. Now just to find $20,000. In a stroke of luck, he was able to raise just enough on new bets that day to live up to his word. The White Sox lost game four, two to zero as well as Game 5, 5-0. There was still one more game the Reds needed to win to take the whole series. Cincinnati fans were confident, while Chicago's were nervous and somber. The players were feeling the pressure, too. The eight involved still intended to go forth with the plan since they were finally getting money, but they wanted to lose with some sense of dignity. The season had been too successful to completely throw it all away. Therefore, the White Sox went on to play their best and blow games 6 and 7 out of the water. Sox fans were relieved to see the team they had seen all season show back up on the field. The series was now much closer, with the Reds having four wins and the Sox with three. The unexpected two-win streak didn't sit well with Arnold Rothstein, who was anxious to see all this come to fruition. This needed to end now. Lefty Williams was due to pitch the next game, and Rothstein would ensure Williams knew he expected results. A messenger was sent to pay a visit to Lefty Williams and his wife. If he didn't ensure the game was set up for an obvious loss by the end of the first inning, his wife would be in danger. Not wanting to take any chances, Williams did just that, allowing the Reds enough runs to seal the deal. The series was over the Cincinnati Reds were victorious. 
After the series, it was more of the same. Rumors continued to circulate. Sports writers wrote of the unexpected defeat, while Sox manager Kid Gleason argued that the rumors were the result of sour grapes from losing. In reality, he and owner Comiskey had their own doubts and discussed what they should do privately. Torn between permanently tarnishing the game and being accused of a cover-up if anything ever did come out, they reaffirmed themselves that there was no real proof after all, just hunches. They had even gone as far as hiring a detective to look into the players' accounts. Only Gandal's account showed a substantial increase in spending and deposits. Comiskey released a statement to the press which said, There is always a scandal of some kind following a big sporting event like the World Series. These yarns are manufactured out of whole cloth and grow out of bitterness due to losing wagers. I believe my boys fought the battles of the recent World Series on the level as they have always done, and I would be the first to want information to the contrary if there be any. I would give $20,000 to anyone unearthing any information to that effect. Several people did come forward, but with information that was speculative at best. People had heard from so-and-so who heard from so-and-so. Nothing substantial. Comiskey and Gleason would rely on these rumors to die out over time, and everything would return to normal. Interestingly, at the same time, accountants and attorneys were swamped with new clients who were behind on alimony and bills after losing all their money betting on the White Sox. For a while, Comiskey and Gleason were right. The rumors did die down a bit, for a while at least. The 1920 baseball season was gearing up. It would be a fresh start for everyone. Soon, it was time for Comiskey to draft contracts for his players for the upcoming year. He received the contracts back, as expected, but was astonished when they were all unsigned. The owner had made one big mistake. He still hadn't changed anyone's salaries. Although Comiskey didn't officially know it, many of his players were now thousands and thousands of dollars richer and they didn't have to settle for being underpaid. Several of them had even used their money to invest in businesses of their own and technically could operate without baseball at all. Gandal, as the mastermind, had walked away with $35,000, equivalent to $522,000 today. Risberg pocketed $10,000. Plus, the Yankees had just purchased their new star player, George Herman Ruth, who everyone called the Babe, from the Red Sox for $125,000. Babe Ruth even admitted to modeling his swing after Shoeless. Surely Shoeless was at least worth that much. It was the first time in a long time that anyone in baseball had any bargaining power. After some negotiating, and maybe a few threats on both sides, most of the White Sox returned, with the exception of Chick Gandal, who didn't want Comiskey's petty sum. The 1920 season started off strong again for the White Sox. No one talked much about the World Series anymore, as they were too focused on the strong season and hopes of redemption. That is, until the Chicago Cubs experienced contract trouble of their own. Cubs player Lee McGee had a two-year contract, but was suddenly let go due to allegations of gambling and throwing a game. He stood trial and was banned from baseball forever. 
In the first public show of corruption in baseball, the rules were getting stricter. The American League hired detectives with the sole purpose of outing gamblers. They would go undercover posing as fans wanting to place bets, and upon discovering the bookies, would find them and ban them from the park. After realizing what a significant problem it really was, an official investigation was launched into the 1919 World Series. The investigation led to some of the players appearing before a grand jury. Eddie Sycott was questioned first, and he cracked immediately. I don't know why I did it. I must have been crazy, he said. Risberg, Gandal, and McMullen were at me for a week before the series began. They wanted me to go crooked. I don't know. I needed the money. I had the wife and the kids. The wife and the kids don't know about this. I don't know what they'll think. I'd bought a farm. There was a $4,000 mortgage on it. There isn't any mortgage on it now. I paid it off with the crooked money. Sycott continued to dish the details and name his accomplices over the course of his two-hour and 11-minute testimony. He hung his head in shame, and when he lifted it, fresh tears were streaming down his face. When asked how he pulled off his part, the pitcher responded, It's easy. Just a slight hesitation on the player's part will let a man get to a base or make a run. I did it by not putting a thing on the ball. You could have read the trademark on it the way I lobbed it over the plate. A baby could have hit him. Now I've lost everything. Job, reputation, everything. All my friends bet on the socks. I knew it, but I couldn't tell them. I had to double-cross them. I'm through with baseball. I'm going to lose myself if I can and just start life over again. Shoeless Joe Jackson and Claude Lefty Williams followed suit. They corroborated the whole story. The jig was up. Chick Gandal, Eddie Sycott, Swede Risberg, Lefty Williams, Buck Weaver, Shoeless Joe Jackson, Fred McMullen, and Happy Felsch were indicted on nine counts of conspiracy to defraud. Five gamblers were indicted as well. The old nickname, the Black Sox, took on a new meaning, implying the team was dark and dirty, a name that would stick when speaking of the scandal for years to come. The sensational trial began June 27, 1921. Sox owner Charles Comiskey had insisted the players wouldn't need lawyers since the evidence was slim. The prosecution intended to use Sycott and Jackson's signed confessions as their main evidence, but when the trial started, the documents were nowhere to be found. They had just vanished. Realizing this, the players instantly recanted their confessions and denied it all in court. This crippled the prosecution since there wasn't much evidence other than that. The jury deliberated for less than three hours and returned a not guilty verdict for all involved. Enthusiastic cheers of free the clean socks were heard throughout the courtroom and soon the country. Several years later, those same documents made a reappearance in the office of Charles Comiskey's lawyer. The fallout from the scandal was extensive. Baseball was tarnished, but the National Commission was tasked with fixing it. 
Federal Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis was appointed to be the first sole commissioner of baseball. His mission? Reestablish and maintain the sport's integrity. His first order of business was banning the eight Black Sox from baseball forever, stating to the press, Regardless of the verdict of juries, no player who throws a ball game, no player who undertakes or promises to throw a ball game, no player who sits in confidence with a bunch of crooked ball players and gamblers, where the ways and means of throwing a game are discussed and does not promptly tell his club about it, will ever play professional baseball. Buck Weaver tried his best to be reinstated on the grounds that he never actually accepted any money, which was true, but he knew about the plan and chose not to speak up. To Commissioner Landis, he was just as guilty as the rest of them. Over the years, many fans have attempted to sign petitions since the Black Sox were unable to be included in the Hall of Fame despite their talent, achievements, and verdict of not guilty. None have ever proved successful. The Black Sox, who also came to be known as the Eight Men Out, went on to lead quiet lives in seclusion. Two years later, there were still contract issues with Charles Comiskey. Arnold Rothstein, who went on to become a famous bootlegger and drug dealer, was shot to death during a card game when he refused to pay on a gambling debt he owed. The Chicago White Sox wouldn't win another league pennant for 40 years, which some say was a curse. Author David James Duncan once said, Baseball is one activity that is able to generate suspense and excitement on a national scale just like war. And baseball can only be played in peace. That concludes today's episode of Mugshot. The last episode of season one will be episode 14, which should release on Friday, October 26th. Follow me on social media to stay up to date on details for season two. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at the handle at MugshotPod. Please hop on iTunes and leave a review about the show if you haven't already. Also, there's a closed Facebook group for the show that can be found by searching for Mugshot Waiting Room. Come join me and talk stories and more. Until next time, stay out of trouble, or you may find yourself pictured in your very own mugshot.